spite of the tragedy of COVID and the massive public health issues, it does illuminate that we can do a better job at uh, protecting people who are homeless and um, getting them into more permanent housing. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Vermont is garnering national attention for its program of using hotels for people experiencing homelessness. Some 2,700 Vermonters experiencing homelessness are now being housed in hotels around the state. This has enabled hotel residents to receive a range of social and mental health services. The unprecedented effort to house the homeless in hotels, which began last spring, was initially driven by the COVID-19 pandemic and the need to minimize the health risk posed by congregate homeless shelters. How do Vermonters end up being homeless, and what happens when these homeless hotels close, as they are expected to do later this year? To talk about this, later in the program, we'll speak with Sean Elsis, a transgender Vermonter, about his experience being homeless in Vermont. But first, we discuss the current state of homelessness in Vermont with three frontline providers. Paul Dragon is the executive director of the Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity, or CVOEO, a community action program. And we're joined by Ken Russell, director of Another Way, a drop-in center for people with mental health challenges in the Barry Montpelier area. And we'll speak with Dawn Little, a street outreach worker in the Barry Montpelier area for Good Samaritan Haven, a 35-year-old shelter in Barry. She's also on the Montpelier Homelessness Task Force. I began by asking Paul Dragon to give us a snapshot of the state of homelessness in Vermont. Yeah, homelessness is still a, a large problem, uh, even here in Vermont. Um, there are about 2,700 people uh, currently in hotels and homeless shelters in Vermont, and uh, that doesn't count people who are doubled up and living on the street or living outside of the shelter system who may be experiencing homelessness. Um, since the pandemic, uh, back in April of um, 2020, um, the state uh, and the Agency of Human Services in particular did a great job at moving people out of congregate shelter settings into hotels all around the state. So right now we do have uh, people who I think are better housed in, in many ways. They're in individual rooms for the most part in different hotels throughout the state, receiving services from uh, various agencies. Uh, the, the funding currently is through FEMA, which is uh, the federal government's disaster relief program for the, for the uh, stays in the hotels. And that funding is um, expected to end in, uh, at the end of uh, August. So um, that will mean that we will have to find other ways to house people once they need to leave uh, the shelter, uh, the, the hotels, they'll be back into a shelter system and into uh, the traditional general assistance program, which also does house people in hotels as well. Um, so during the pandemic, I think the state has adjusted well during the public health crisis, getting people uh, in congregate shelter settings out into individual rooms. And I think it really has averted um, 
kind of a, a health a health disaster. Um, Has it created opportunities to, uh, you know, aid homeless people or people experiencing homelessness uh, in a way that hasn't been possible before? Yeah, I think, you know, my perspective is uh, many of the shelters, not all of them, but many throughout the state um, have had insufficient funding and they've been, um, you know, putting people up in more congregate settings. Some shelters, people have to leave during the day. So just from our experience, we're operating the Holiday Inn, which is one of the largest emergency housing facilities in the state where we have anywhere from 115 to 160 people there at any time. Uh, the situation there, I think, is, has allowed us to work more closely with people in a more uh, respectable setting. They have their own rooms, their own bath. Uh, they don't have to leave during the day. There are adequate common spaces. They get three, three meals a day. That coupled with some of the opportunities that have come through stimulus funding, like the statewide housing voucher program, which CVOEO is administering throughout the state in the rapid rehousing funds, has allowed us and other organizations uh, to help people exit homelessness. So this has been a time where I think, in spite of the tragedy of, the, of COVID and the massive public health issues, it does illuminate um, that we can do a better job at uh, protecting people who are homeless and um, getting them into more permanent housing. Ken Russell, uh, you are with Another Way in uh, the Montpelier area, uh, a, a drop-in center for people experiencing mental health challenges. I wonder if you could talk about, you were involved in convening a meeting uh, along with Dawn Little and others uh, last week where people who are in the hotels talked about their experience, among other things. What are some of the things that you're hearing? What are some of the strengths and weaknesses of this current approach to dealing with people experiencing homelessness? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's, as Paul suggested, you know, they're, they're, you know this, is, this, this is a setting that allows some dignity for folks and gets them out of the cold. They're in warm rooms. Um, they are getting meals. Um, this is an opportunity for folks to um, organize, get, work together, uh, develop uh, networks of mutual care, um, develop relationships with um, other uh, harmless folks and with service providers. Um, and yeah, we had a forum on Thursday, the 25th, and it was it was a it was a powerful experience, um, folks sharing their truths um, and frustrations. I mean, you have folks who've been homeless for decades who um, have various obstacles, um, mental health and, and others, substance, um, just, just, you know, being in a, in a downward spiral. So there is an opportunity while folks are in these motels to, to hopefully redirect and, and help folks find some traction, develop networks, relationships, connect with programs that can help them. Um, and I, I have to say it was um, being in that room, which we were very carefully distanced in there. There were a lot of people in by Zoom and then a, a select number in the room. 
it was a, it was a powerful experience. And what, it was, why do you say that? What was, what was powerful about it? I guess being uh, just, you know, having conversations with someone who's in life crisis, whether they're homeless or something else, sometimes you don't always take the time to really just be present with their full story. And they have often have a lot to say and are often used to not being heard. So really being present with the stories um, and the trauma underneath it all, and but really and the, the real humanity of it all causes me to reflect on my own humanity and, you know, the connection with these folks. Um, and, and these aren't the sort of folks that, I mean, it's society often, these aren't the sort of folks that you use people necessarily following the straightforward rules of society often associate with. Um, folks look for, you know, their social circles and the, you know, white picket fences and all that. And oftentimes maybe glance sideways uh, when passing these folks and really being present with these, with folks is, is, is powerful. Also taking their plight seriously. Um, and the fact, I mean, Paul mentioned the numbers to 2,700 people statewide. If the proposal by the administration goes through, um, that might mean 1,500 to 1,700 people will be back out on the streets um, come fall. And that's a humanitarian c catastrophe. Um, it's a public health crisis that we've been living with for a long time. And it's there's some irony here that, you know, the greater public health crisis of COVID has, has shifted the ground underneath this, this ongoing public health crisis. I want to bring in Dawn Little. Uh, Dawn is a street outreach worker in the Barry Montpelier area for the Good Samaritan Haven, uh, a 35-year-old shelter in Barry, uh, and also on the Montpelier Homelessness Task Force. Dawn, you are uh, in daily contact with people who are experiencing homelessness or, uh, you know, on the brink. What has changed right now? What has COVID done in terms of why people may find themselves in the situation of confronting homelessness? Um, there, there are a lot of changes uh, since COVID happened. Some of them are, are negative and some of them surprisingly are positive. Um, some of the, the functional changes that have occurred due to the virus. Um, unfortunately, there are very few spaces for people to get out of the cold or in the summer out of the heat um, because there aren't any shared spaces and the traditional resources are not open. Um, it's much harder to get transportation to services or emergency shelter. Um, there is less access to public spaces with email and phones to keep in touch with your family or job search or um, access resources. Um, there are fewer bathrooms open. Um, it seems like there's going to be a greater need and, and fewer places. But, you know, on the other hand, there is more food readily available. I think there's been better communication among the providers than there was before. And there's certainly more public recognition of the need and of the gaps in services. Um, and there are more people willing to help. I mean, there are people who volunteered, um, you know, the street medics, the church groups have organized to deliver food to people. 
Um, and I believe that that was the first time there's been an organized effort to actually deliver food to people outside. Um, so what, do you, been... what do you want people to understand about homelessness right now in Vermont? Um, a number of things. I mean, I think, um, I think one thing people assume is that there's plenty of help available um, and there is, but it, due to the shortage of housing in Vermont and the, the overburdened case management, it really can take a very long time between when you get into the system and when you actually get permanent housing. And in the meantime, you have to survive. Um, the other thing people seriously underestimate is the time and the stamina that's required to survive outside. Um, and just sort of the unrelenting uncertainty of it. Um, and it, another huge thing is that virtually everyone that I've seen outside has got some sort of hidden disability, whether it's a medical, a chronic medical condition, a traumatic brain injury. Um, a lot of people with childhood trauma issues or, or lifetime trauma issues and a lot of addiction. Um, and that's, kind of thing is really hard to deal with if you are housed and if you have the support of your family and if you have money and transportation and if you don't have any of those things it's much harder to jump through the hoops that are necessary to get help how how and where are people living outside right now today it is snowing and in the teens it's unimaginable really to think of being outside overnight there are because of the pandemic and the funding and the motel program there are far fewer people outside at the moment there are people out there are people who have encampments in the woods there are people who sleep on heating vents or in shrubberies or on benches uh, maybe maybe under a porch of a public building. Um, you know, some people are settled in and they have camps and they have equipment. Um, some people are not. I got two different calls last night, um, people looking for a place to stay out and Good Samaritan was able to provide them with camping equipment and transportation. And I was able to advise them of where they could go. Um, it's not ideal, but when the motels are full or people are, some people are not don't coexist well with this with the system are not able to follow the behavioral standards or they have trauma issues and they're not able to tolerate being consistently closely housed closely housed with other people so they end up being outside unexpectedly or they get exited from you know they have an issue with their family or their spouse they lose their housing their car breaks down whatever and they're suddenly and unexpectedly outside. So there's a constant trickle of people, even with the motel program. Um, how, how, many, how many out. people in the Barry Montpelier area are living outdoors right now, roughly? At the moment, I mean, on a normal year, the year before the pandemic, say in the fall, before the warming shelters opened, I had 45 people in Montpelier, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a dozen in Berlin and probably more in Barrie. And right now I would say four people in Montpelier, maybe about eight people in Berlin. And I really, I don't have the numbers for Barrie. I know there are at least a couple people there, but it's, hmm. it's harder to find them. I wonder if you would be open to sharing a little of your own experience with homelessness, Dawn, just for people to understand 
how you found yourself in that situation and what it took to get out of it. I think, um, I mean, I have not experienced homelessness to the degree that most of the people I deal with are, have been chronically homeless over a period of time. I think it can be a combination, you know, as it, as it was for me, it's kind of a combination of medical and trauma issues and our personal barriers and, you know, misfortune, bad timing, you lose a job, your living situation changes, you know, you have an unexpected expense. Um, you know, one of the things that I really do have in common with people who are outside is that I have fallen through a lot of cracks in just about every system, whether it's the educational system or with employment. Um, I was considered unemployable, although I do work many hours a week, but because I am unable to keep regular schedule, I, it's very hard for me to get a paying job. And I think a lot of people out there have that, you know, have that issue. So it's, it's very hard. And especially if you're chronically outside and you're concentrating moment to moment on how do I keep warm? Where do I get food? You know, has someone stolen my sleeping bag? Where do I go then? You know, and you don't have the resources to fall back on. Hmm. Um, Paul Dragon, um, where you mentioned that the current uh, motel voucher system, uh, or, or I don't know if it's a voucher system, the motel housing system is going to end. Uh, what do you see down the road for dealing with Vermont's homeless population if we've got 2,700 people in? motels where do they go yeah again that number doesn't include people who are doubled up or as dawn says living on the street as well um so you know i think we're going to be at a crossroads and uh if we go back to what the status quo was before the pandemic there'll be a certain amount of funding maybe it'll be increased however i think what will happen is we'll go back to you know, the shelter system, again, in my opinion, very underfunded, um, including um, certain positions like Dawn's position doing outreach, there's just not enough of it. And including Ken's work, you know, working with people with mental health conditions. So we'll go back to that. And I think um, people will find themselves in settings that, you know, will not allow them to prosper personally or economically and uh, continue to be more you know, disconnected from our, our community. Um, and, and there'll be ancillary conditions and high social costs for that because when that happens, um, we know that um, safe, healthy, affordable housing is uh, deeply connected to a person's um, uh, well-being. So that means medical and mental health conditions. So when we don't house people adequately, they're a lot more likely to hit more expensive systems like uh, the emergency rooms and uh, the criminal court system. And that has a huge social cost. So I think what we need to do is back up, realize some of the opportunities that were mentioned here during um, this, this pandemic and um, get people housed so that um, not only will they succeed, we as a society will succeed. And I, I just wanna say that, um, you know, for, 
from our perspective, uh, homelessness is not a, uh, you know, a, a personal failing or a moral failure. You know, Ken talked about people and we all do it. We pass by and sometimes we disregard people like it's their fault. Um, this is a massive social failure. And, um, and housing is a human right. It's recognized by the United Nations as a human right. And um, it is deeply connected to how well people do in their own lives, but also how well we do um, as, as a community. So if you look at the medical field, which is so well-funded with high salaries, and then you look at the field of homelessness and the work that Ken and Dawn and the community action agencies are doing, there's a huge kind of um, discrepancy there. So uh, I would <laughs> suggest that we all back up and think about, um, you know, rather than find ourselves in this position the next time there's a public health outbreak, you know, I would suggest that there's um, a public health uh, disaster right now going on now and before uh, the pandemic when we don't adequately house so many people in our state and throughout this country. And I also just want to say, Dawn was mentioning some of the issues right now, um, some of the negative parts of what's happening, and, and it's true. So, um, you know, the, the state, for all the good they did to get people in hotels, when people are put out of hotels because of behavioral issues, they get long periods of ineligibility up to 30 days. And then it is so hard for the rest of us, for the Good Samaritans, for another way, for the community action agencies to get those people housed again because they're not allowed back in hotels for really long periods of time, a month during the winter. It's really hard. It's really detrimental. And you know, we, we operate a day center where people can come during the day because Dawn's right, there are no more public spaces with COVID. That's another effect. And the other day outside the day center, there's a shed, which I never thought anybody would try to stay in, but somebody was living in that, that shed we found out. So when there are long periods of ineligibility and people are not allowed in hotels, uh, there are consequences for their lives and for all of us, for our kids who have to think about and walk by people who, um, and, and they naturally wonder like a child would because they're still concerned and like adults who are so used to it, what the heck is this person doing living outside? What has the governor proposed in his new budget for dealing with homelessness? If the question's to me, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. be brief. I think, I think there is going to be a boost um, with the potential restructuring of the general assistance program, there will be a boost in funding for homelessness. Again, uh, the idea, though, is to go back to, I think, status quo, give the program over to communities, have the state um, uh, turn that responsibility, which I do think is a state and federal responsibility, back over to communities. And even with increased funding, we're going to get back to a shelter system and a hotel system uh, that uh, will be underfunded and won't solve the issue of, you know, getting people um, permanent housing, which again is, which should be something that we, you know, we all work for. Ken Russell, um, 
if this is an opportunity to radically rethink how we deal with homelessness, what should that look like? What is a radical reconceptualization of homelessness look like in your view? Two things that come to mind. I mean, one would be, I was excited when Beth Pierce, the state treasurer was looking at housing because she's in a position to do global budgeting. And if you can say we're saving corrections money here, we're saving hospitals money here, we're saving schools money here, and you could re-divert that say into the motel program that keeps people out of the streets. I know UVM Medical Center has had some of that thinking. So th that I think would be a game changer if, if folks could figure, figure out the intricacies of making that work. Um, other ideas are sort of just think about the design of our cities. I mean, Paul mentioned the shed. We have that in Montpelier, we have this pocket park. What's needed when folks are becoming eligible for motels is some kind of shelter that we have the information booth in Montpelier that folks will sleep in or this pocket park that's been a source of much consternation for folks. But there is a need for, for at least something for people to be in. But beyond that is how do you share space? How do you, you know, not go home at the end of the day and, you know, there's something called home share now. How do you share your space with somebody that might feel intimidating to you. I mean, that's really the fundamental issue is think about this as a small Vermont town and everybody's needs matter and how do we have common wealth, common, you know, well-being. Um, you know, that's an attitudinal shift and I understand there, why there are barriers there, but I mean, that's fundamentally what's needed. I, well, I don't know. That sounds way too easy. I know there, there are no easy answers, but. Well, let me, let me toss this to Dawn Little. Uh, Dawn, um, if you were to see or propose a radical change in how we deal with homelessness, what would you want to see in a reconceived program post-COVID? I don't know. I'm kind of a Band-Aid here, so it's, it's hard for me to you know, I don't have any solution. I do know that we need to find solutions for people with barriers um, because the system just is not, the system as it is now is, you know, it's not the fault of the system, but it's not the fault of the individuals. It just wasn't set up to deal with people and a lot of people fall through the cracks. So we need, we need to also recognize that people have different abilities to tolerate living in a group situation and try to provide different forms of housing. And we really need to, as, as Paul said, I think street outreach and what Ken does, the peer support, you need to meet people where they are both geographically and in terms of their goals, um, because a lot of people just aren't able to utilize what's out there. Yeah. So in terms, you know, maybe we could have a yurt colony or something for people, but we need more spaces where people are allowed to be and we need greater public awareness of what the issues are and that that people are human and that they don't choose this for the most part most of them are not out there because they've chosen this lifestyle it's just we've made it very hard you know and it's it's very hard for them to change their situation under these circumstances finally paul you've talked about uh housing is health care uh, and homelessness is a healthcare issue. What do you mean by that? And what are the implications of acting on that? 
Yeah, I think Dawn spoke really well to this. For one thing, people experiencing homelessness have higher rates of chronic medical conditions. And um, they're from SAMHSA, the Substance Use Mental Health Service Administration, they say that even a brief period of homelessness can be traumatic as you go lose your housing, go out into the street or into a crowded shelter. Those are traumatic experiences that lead to anxiety and depression. Um, so it's no wonder that many people experiencing homelessness um, have chronic medical conditions or co-occurring mental health and substance use conditions. So again, if we get people stably housed, then uh, our medical costs are gonna be driven down. So I don't understand why we're not able to think ahead and to, and to, and to do something like that. And then David, I'll just say that, you know, you're asking three, you know, organizations, um, I think to solve an issue that is bigger than us and it's a systemic issue in our society. So we can do really good work. Ken can see all the people he can see and Dawn's gonna outreach and do everything she can do. You know, we're operating a large shelter and a day center and we do a lot of housing advocacy uh, but in the end, it is a systems issue and it's a human rights issue and um, it's a civil rights issue. So those issues really should uh, be solved at the federal and state level. And in the meantime, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and we're honored to do it. We're not going to solve this issue without um, a systemic solution. Okay. Well, Ken Russell, Paul Dragon and Dawn Little, I want to thank all three of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation this week. Thank you. How do people end up becoming homeless? For Sean Elsis, a transgender Vermonter who worked in corrections, a series of unexpected health challenges left him suddenly unable to work and unable to afford rent. Elsis first shared his story in January at a hearing on homelessness in the Vermont legislature, and then he agreed to talk again here on the Vermont Conversation. I began by asking him to recount how he came to Vermont and then how he became homeless. I moved to Vermont in 2011. I was I worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice as a lieutenant in the prison system. So I moved to Vermont so I could transition. I was born female and I'm male now. Uh, I was trying to do it in Texas and I couldn't. I got a lot of retaliation, so I had to give up my career. And then I, I got a job for three years working for the state of Vermont in corrections. And then I just, 20 years of doing that, I went into retail. I got real sick, and that was the end of my career. But anyways, uh, in 2019, my health started declining, so I had to totally stop working and I didn't have enough save to like keep paying for rent and paying my bills so I ended up in a vehicle and it, it was something I never thought I'd have to face because I've always worked at least two jobs I'd have a full-time job and a part-time job just for money to play with so when I hit homelessness, I didn't know what to do. And I had a friend tell me about economic services. And then economic services put me in touch with the Haven. 
and um, the people I, I the, the, what what is the oh haven? yes Upper Valley Haven they uh they it's like a food shelf and then they house they have a couple of houses there for people that are homeless but you have to get on a waiting list and you share a room with someone else so there's two people in a, in a room and I was lucky enough that Nancy Griffin got me on top of the list it was winter time by now and it was getting really really cold out there and I was contemplating suicide because I, I knew I can't survive in that kind of weather nobody can I don't know how the people do that are intense it it breaks my heart but anyways so you, you were in your car and winter was coming on yes I would you turn it on I mean how, what did you do did you run it to run the heater or no I didn't I didn't have any money to do that because I used all my savings trying to stay in housing and I just couldn't I want to go to that point. Um, You know, my, my first job out of college that I worked for several years was uh, in a homeless shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And one of the things that really struck me uh, in my interactions with guests at the shelter was how little difference there was between me and them. You know, it was just a a bad event, uh, you know, a, a turn of events for them that landed them, uh, suddenly they burned through their cash and they landed in the shelter where I worked. Um, what was that event for you? What was that moment, sort of that tipping point where you fell over the edge into homelessness? When I completely had to stop working and I had no way of like, keeping hold of my savings it, it was just rent it, I was renting a, a room for 800 a month and then you know I shared utilities that goes very quickly I I personally and this was wrong and my mind has changed a lot and if I get emotional excuse me but I thought that homeless people were addicts and that they didn't care about their lives or care about working. And I got treated that way when I went into the shelter and just regular people on the street would treat me like a scumbag. And it's awful. Even addicts shouldn't be true. Nobody should be treated like that. Like your dignity is already gone. And it, it changed my my whole outlook on people, especially in the homeless shelter, because you have the you have elderly people there that are living off disability that can't afford it. You have addicts that are in recovery that are trying to rebuild their lives. It, it it's heartbreaking. I'm glad I got to experience that. It broke me as a person. Are you saying that in the shelter, you experienced a lack of dignity or outside the shelter? I felt it both. I mean, there was some staff that were great, 
but there's some staff that should not be working there because you shouldn't treat, it doesn't matter if people are addicts or not, you shouldn't treat people like that. You shouldn't like tell them to go to bed when they're, they're having anxiety because they're in a new place and their whole world has just been turned upside down from having everything and having a good, happy life to having nothing but a shirt and pair of pants on, on you and no cash in your pocket. I, I think like when people go in the shelter, they need to have some kind of psychologist there to talk to people when you come in. Not just the psychologists that you have for the people that have mental health, but for the ones that everybody that comes in. Did it change your own sense of yourself and who you were to find yourself in a shelter? Yes, it, it did very much. I mean, I had compassion for people anyways, but it made me have more compassion and more understanding and hearing different people's stories in there, it, it just broke my heart. Like there were so many addicts and then there's so many people that are in their 60s and 50s that are disabled that are trying to just survive. I was on the brink of suicide and I never thought I would actually try to attempt it. And I was very close. If I wouldn't have got that phone call from Nancy Griffin telling me, hey, we got you a room at the Hickson house, which is a house, right? The Haven's right here. And then they have housing for, the, for a single people to live. I, if I wouldn't have got that phone call, I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you. What is the time frame from when you fell ill and lost your jobs here in Vermont to when you landed in a homeless shelter? July is when I lost the job and December 30th was the day I entered the shelter. So basically in a period of six months and, and I mean, had the weather not been, had it not been winter, you'd, you'd have probably kept staying in your car. Is that right? Yes. I was actually in the field on one of my friend's property. Like she, she and her wife had four kids and they told me I could come in and sleep on the couch, you know, when needed to be, but I didn't want to interrupt their life. So I just stayed way away from the house out in the middle of the field. And I'd build me little fires at night, but it was still it's scary out there. You know, there's bears up here in Vermont. My mind just got to thinking. And then uh, up in West Thompson, it's very cold. Like for me in October, it started getting really cold. Mm -hmm. And then I called economic services to get into a hotel and I had to go through a lot of paperwork with my doctor to get me in, but I didn't have that many stays. I was literally, I had a, a couple of weeks, but I was three days from being back in my car. 
and in those three days, I was praying for like something to happen. And if, if something didn't, that's, that was when I, I decided I was not going to like, I was going to take my own life. What is it like to navigate the social service system? People, it's hard. You know, people who, who've not done it have no idea. So tell us what it's like. If you're, a, a, well, for me, I just walked in, I did some paperwork. But if you're a single male, you have to have some kind of disability in order to get help. If you don't and you're out of a job, there's no help. You may get some food stamps, but there's not going to be, a sh you know, being put up in a hotel during the winter. You have to meet certain criteria as far as health conditions. So there's a lot of people out there that don't get that help from economic services when winter comes. And, and for people who don't know, economic services is the division of the state uh, that assists people, you know, low-income people or people in economic distress in some fashion. Um, is it a system where you have to come in repeatedly to, you know, keep renewing things and ex explain how often you were interacting with them? Oh, yes, sir. I forgot about that. I'd interact with them. Uh, well, Every month I'd interact with them for my food stamps and I got $56 a month to live off of that washed my clothes. <laughs> I mean, seriously, $56 does not go far in a month. But when it came to like getting shelter and trying to get into a motel when winter hit, I had to go in there every day until I got enough documentations saying I can't go into the overnight shelters because of my PTSD and anxiety from working in the prison. I can't be around an open space with uh, individuals I don't know. I won't sleep all night. I'll be holding on to what little stuff I have left. So it, it just depends. If you're getting monthly services, you have to go in every month. Well, right now you have to call because of the COVID. You end up in a shelter in December 2019, and how long was it before you found housing through the help of uh, the Haven? I got housing in April of 2020. So for four months, you were in a homeless shelter. And for four months, I paced the floors all night long, and I'd sleep in the daytime. What were you afraid of? Uh... I didn't get along with my first roommate. He would like wake me up because I, I really have a bad, I snore really loud. I get it. But you're, you coming over and touching me. That's not a good thing for me. Working for someone that works in the penitentiary or law enforcement, or that has some kind of traumatic things that happen to them. You don't want someone in your space. So it was hard sharing a room with someone that you don't know and, and that would constantly wake you up. So it just kicked in my anxiety and PTSD more until they got me a different roommate. 
that roommate we got we're still friends i just still couldn't sleep what is the challenge of finding housing once you are without housing uh what does it take you have to fill out so many different housing applications it's so confusing so let me go back when you're you get into a shelter the hickson house they automatically assign you a caseworker that you work with you meet with every week and i got a really good caseworker i had already filled out all the housing applications before i got into a shelter and let me back up and tell you how i did that i had a doctor that put me in touch with the caseworker at the hospital who was checking on me and and told me what i needed to do in order to to help get housing. So it was a lot of paperwork. I had to help have someone help me do the paperwork because I'm dyslexic and my handwriting is really, really bad. Do you think your situation as a transgender person affected you uh, in, in terms of how you were helped or the situation that you found yourself in? It affected me mentally, everybody that helped me, because Vermont, I got to say, for the most part, is so great on, on the LGBT community. But as far mentally, it was really hard for me to ask for help because I was afraid if anyone found out who I was, what was going to happen to me? Because there are a lot of transgender people that get raped that get murdered, get molested. So I would have that fear in the back of my mind. My caseworker at the hospital and and one of my friends would calm me down and say, Sean, nothing's going to happen to you. If something happens, here's a phone number, call, and we'll be right there for you. So I was glad to have that support. But there's so many transgender people out there on the streets that that don't realize that there is someone out there to help you. I get the fear and the dysphoria. I understand that. I lived it. It took a lot for me to ask for that help. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so when you finally find housing, April 2020, of course, that is the beginning of the pandemic. Yes. How has COVID affected your life? I, I don't leave my apartment much. I, I'm afraid of getting sick. I have a very low immune system. I've had a cold all winter. Um, I was actually the first person to go into the motels because I had double pneumonia when COVID hit. So the Hickson house, you know, said, you can't come back to your room. Everybody that's in a certain age or a certain bracket, we're going to put them in, put them in the motels, but you're the first one that's going. So it, are, it was hard. <laughs> what are these motels like? Uh, this is where most homeless people uh, are now living. It, in the beginning, it, it was rough. Like I got in touch with one of my former employees that got me in touch with 
uh, her niece that has a business called Cornerstone Healthcare. Well, she came out and was, she was feeding me and went and picked up medications for me because there was no food being brought in the beginning. So as people were coming in the motel, I was giving her names and her and her partner were delivering food to us every day and more and more people were coming. Now, I think there, well, let me back up. There was a lot of bad things with all the people that came to the motel because there are people off that were living in tents that were coming to the motel or people from different states and there was a lot of drug activity. It was scary for me and scary for some of my elderly friends from the from the Hickson house because I didn't want nothing to happen to them nor me. I, I don't think there was enough check-ins at all. Uh, I still feel that way with some of my friends that are in the motels. They need that face-to-face, not just a phone conversation. They need to be put at ease that they're still working on getting housing. So do you have housing now or are you still in the motels? No, I have housing now. Uh, I live in the, in an apartment in Bethel. Okay. What do you want people to understand about being homeless? Everyone is really a paycheck away from homelessness. And it really doesn't matter. I mean, it, unless you have two hundred or $300,000 saved up, you're going to be on that street. Um, not... It, it doesn't matter if someone's an addict or not. We still need to be treated like a, a human being. We've already lost everything. For me, it was my job. That was my safety net. I thought I'd, I would work until the day I died. Like I said, I'd work two jobs. My friends would tell you they would hardly see me because I'd always work and pick up extra hours. I like making money and I like keeping busy. So I, I just want people to know, like, talk to someone, ask what they're going through. Even asking someone if they're okay gives them that little spark of hope that everything's going to be okay because someone cares. When I was in that shelter, I was losing my mind because I, I felt like this is the end. Am I going to ever have a house or an apartment? Am I ever going to have any money back in my pocket again? That was scary for me. I finally got disability in uh, October of last year. And I, I had bought it myself from July of 2019 living off 56 dollars a month like i said is just not enough economic services was paying my rent until i got my ssdi which i was grateful for i think some things need to be changed about you know their 56 dollars a month they they did take away my food stamps they gave it back to me for a little bit in in covid and they took it away again last month. So I 
I do have that fear about losing housing again because my food bill is is high due to my illnesses that I have. Hmm. Uh, and also, I'm a diabetic now, so I have to really read what I buy and paying for rent and paying for food and my animal and just uh, other things that I may need. It, it's tough. It's stressful. What do you think needs to be done to end homelessness? I think instead of uh, people just telling homeless people get a job or I think people just need to pull together and like help. I think rent needs to be lowered. The rent up here is really, really high. I could buy a house for $800 a month in Texas. No problem. Um, I think all this land that I see with nothing on it that some yurts or trailers should go up. I think that would help in homelessness, like build a little community out there uh, with the homeless people so they could rebuild their life and get back out there in society. I mean, if I had a lot of money, I would really buy a hundred acres and put yurts and put trailers out there and have the homeless people build the land I would have caseworkers out there and psychologists out there and just help these people get back on their feet. And just having someone talk to them positively, it, it really changes someone's attitude instead of living in that darkness. I was in that darkness, but I was lucky that I had a couple of people that I met in the homeless shelter that would bring me out of that darkness. Do you think that you will be able to work again? I don't think I will ever be able to work again. Um, my hands, I have really, really bad arthritis. I don't mind telling my illness. I have uh, acute and chronic pancreatitis. Uh, I'm a diabetic now that's not controlled, and that's due to be the pancreas. And then I have real bad insomnia and I get into bad depressions especially in winter and it, it's just gotten worse because I've had to stop working but on the positive note I have picked up hobbies like I rock collect now I fish a lot in the summertime and I go hiking with my dog so I, I wish that I could work again but it's not feasible for me. My hands shake all the time. I have trouble opening simple things or even taking a bolt off of something. It, it takes forever. <laughs> what made you decide to speak up and speak to that legislative uh, hearing and be public with your story? I wanted to, uh, people to know what a homeless person really is. We're just a person. It, it doesn't matter who they are. 
you know, you could have, I was a lieutenant in corrections and then I was an assistant manager for Price Chopper at night. And then I went to assistant manager for Dollar Tree. Like I had a good career. I had good jobs. So I wanted people to know that it, it's, it's not just addicts, but it doesn't matter that it's people like me and it's people that are on disability that are in their 60s that can't afford to pay the rent because their disability checks are, are very low. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the public just had a bad view of what homelessness was. I did. I was guilty of thinking it. I was, let me tell you, if I could take all that back, what I thought about homeless people, I would in a minute, but it changed me. I'm glad I had that experience. I don't want to ever go through it again because it broke me, but I'm slowly rebuilt myself into a better person and better at listening to people. How are you doing now? I'm doing good. Winter is going away. I've been taking more walks outside because it's been sunny. I know spring and summer's coming. So, you know, I'm, I'm having hope. I didn't have like a vehicle when I moved to Bethel. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have anything in the, in the apartment I moved into. My apartment is now fully furnished. I now have two vehicles because I just bought me an uh, older truck Sunday and I brought, bought me a Jeep Wrangler a couple months ago. I have a, a dog that's my best friend and I actually reconnected with uh, my best friend, Anthony, because we had stopped speaking a year and a half ago and he is one of the first friends I met up here. He's like a brother to me. So things are going better. I I feel I have a five-year plan where I want to buy some land and I'm hoping I could do that. Okay. Well, Sean Elsis, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us on the Vermont Conversation and good luck. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>